Welcome to the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast, hosted by myself, Sebastian Bates, and Timothy Fair-Matthews. A podcast made by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. We're launching our podcast with a series of raw but real interviews with some of the world's leading business mentors, industry experts, and entrepreneurs with incredible stories. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and entertain. So if it's your first time joining us, make sure you go back to episode one and don't miss a thing as you listen to incredible insights from our speakers. This is the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast. Hello, guys, and welcome back to today's live interview. I'm here again with Daniel Priestley, who's joining us for the second time. Um, if you weren't here for last week's interview with Daniel, you missed an amazing uh, chat. Uh, we covered a lot of awesome content. Um, but just to give you a, a brief intro to Daniel, um, he's the founder of Dent. Um, he's also a, a, he's also the best-selling author of four books, Entrepreneurial Revolution, Key Personal Influence, 24 Assets, and Oversubscribed. Today, we are going to be focusing on his last book, or his, his book called Oversubscribed, not his most recent book. I think your most recent was... 24 hours. Yeah, well, um, oversubscribed second edition just came out. Yeah, so it's kind of kind of like that because I put I put about fifteen thousand new words into it and um, and then re-released it. Amazing. So if you haven't read that one, guys, by the end of this, I think you'll all be running to the to the, the bookshop to get it. It's a it's a really really great book. Some amazing insights from it, which um, we want to we want to kind of talk about today. So um, so oversubscribed. Tell us what it's about, Daniel. What's what's kind of the concept here? Well, it all goes back to this time that I was touring. I was 18, 19 years old. I was touring with an events promotion company, uh, a very, very successful stock market trader. And um, he had made millions and millions uh, trading the stock market. And if you don't know much about trading the stock market, it's basically, it's almost, it's, it's almost as hard as being able to say that you consistently win at a casino or something like that. Like it's, it's hard to be a consistent, over 20 years being a consistent stock market trader like Warren Buffett or something like that. Anyway, um, he, he basically, he, I, I asked him very naively as a, as a young guy, I said, oh, what, you know, what's the secret, <laughs> right? Like what's the, what's the secret to being a, a world-class stock market trader? And he said, well, the first secret is you've got to understand why markets go up uh, and why they go down. And I said, oh, yeah, what is it? And he said, is it, you know, why do you think? I said, well, I think it's because it's a good CEO, good business plan, good economy, um, great product, great innovation, great culture. And he said, no, no, the stock market goes up because there are more buyers than sellers. And the stock market goes down because there's more sellers than buyers. And it was interesting because I suppose within the context of the mystique that he said that to me, um, it made me kind of really reflect on it for many years. And also I knew how successful he was. Um, and I was never interested in stock market trading. I was interested in entrepreneurship. But kind of that same idea kept sitting in my head around why is it that some business coaches get paid 2000 pounds a session why is it that some people get paid 10 grand to speak on a stage other people would happily speak for free um why is it that uh you know some people um some bottles of wine are 400 pounds for a bottle and other bottles of wine are four or five pounds a bottle and most people can hardly tell the difference between the taste between the two and it's like you know why is that and then I remember keep coming back to this idea, more buyers than sellers, more buyers than sellers. If demand is, if demand exceeds supply, then you are oversubscribed and then the pushes the prices up. And I know that is such a 
super crazy, simple economics 101 idea, but I think we forget the basics. When you put a product online and the supply is infinite, you shouldn't be surprised when the price falls to zero because you've created something that has no capacity constraint. So therefore the market forces will push the prices all the way down to zero if it's purely a digital product with, with infinite, um, infinite uh, supply. Um, and it's essentially, I see so many business owners so eager to say, yes, I can do all things for all people and I will never turn down a client. I have no constraint around capacity. And then they wonder why their prices get forced down year after year. They think the market is their friend. The market's there to push prices down. And then I see some business owners who ab absolutely protect their experience. They they'd say, look, I'm only going to take on 10 clients per month. Um, I'm going to make sure every client gets an amazing experience. They create a constraint around demand and supply. And then I watch their prices go up and up and up and up. Um, and I just saw so many business owners getting this simple, fundamental, basic economics 101 thing wrong that it made me write the book, Oversubscribed, which is essentially about creating demand and supply tension, creating a tension between the capacity to deliver a great experience and the number of people who want that experience. And if you can get that tension right, if you can get the demand and supply tension out of balance, so there's more buyers than sellers, then you end up with a profitable price. The marketplace only barely tolerates profit. And if you get that right, then the marketplace will tolerate you earning a profit. But if, if you get it wrong, the marketplace will force your prices to zero. Amazing. It'd be, it'd be really cool to talk about, you know, what, do, what are you seeing people do right now in terms of how they're approaching their own businesses? Now, now, that, now that we've kind of gone through this massive transition, we're going through this, this difficult lockdown period, how are people positioning their businesses differently in, with, with that kind of, you know, oversubscribe? Well, a lot of people are doing it wrong. For starters, I'll say that most businesses are getting it wrong. So, for example, uh, one of the things I saw people do as soon as the economy went like, you know, took a took a shock, was people said, "I'm going to put my, I'm going to put everything that I do online, and I'm going to make courses available online, um, and I'm just going to put everything out there on on the internet." And essentially, what they've just done is created a massive girth of capacity. So imagine, here's a weird situation. Imagine an airline and there's a shock to the airline and not many people want to fly. So they say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to open up 10 times more flights. Mm. And you go, why would you do that? You're going to force all the prices to zero. Like, you know, if you if you open up 10 times more flights, the prices go down, not up. Um, so capacity is key. Yeah, well, one, well, it's the, it's the ratio. It's the demand mm. and supply tension. It's the tension between capacity and, and demand. So the first thing I'm seeing entrepreneurs doing is like throwing their products out there onto the digital environment. Digital means unlimited capacity. So if the core of what you do has zero limit, I don't care if you promote yourself using digital. If you put a lot of content in the marketplace as a way of gaining awareness, that's fine. But if you actually put your products online, the core of what you do, essentially you're now competing with every other company who does something similar. Um, capacity goes to infinite number. Uh, the the competition is now one click away, less than a minute away. You can find a viable alternative. So now you're actually creating the you're creating the market conditions which force prices down, not up. Um, before, yeah. Um, I think I think um, I think obviously on, online delivery is is so important now. I mean it's 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 vital right now. And I think you know a lot of what we're doing at Efton Academy is is helping people deliver 
online, right? Bringing, getting all their, all the digital assets, they're probably setting all the assets, all the IP they're sitting on, making it digital. But one of the things we're really heavy on is community and intakes. If you're going to put something online, you know, restrict that capacity to only a certain number of people so that you do kind of control that tension, that supply and demand tension. Yeah. Well, here's a, here's another crazy idea. I would love it if everyone would delete the word online. I think online is a very dangerous word in the first place. So <clears throat> here's why. Number one, the word online for most people means at a distance, remote, separate, automated, no humans involved. When we think about online businesses like Facebook and Google, one of the biggest frustrations we have is that they're completely faceless companies. You can't call Google and say, hey, I'm having a problem with search today. Can you help me? Um, you know, you can't call up Facebook and say, hey, I've really, I've figured, I've lost, I've lost some photos and I can't find where they are. Can someone kind of jump on and give me a bit of support on uh, where my photos might be? Like it, it makes people feel that they are completely going to be remote from you and they're going to have to rely upon the system and they're going to have no support, no help, um, and it's going to be completely distant. So the word online is a very, um, it, it almost for the buyer creates a soulless uh, remote experience from the from the get-go. Um, it also means capacity is unlimited and it also triggers the thinking that this should be free because most right. things that you most things that you get online are free. Here's another reason why I wouldn't use the word online because it doesn't exist anymore. There is no such thing as online or offline. It's like saying, oh, I went into an electrified home the other day. What do you mean? <laughs> well, it was a house that had electricity. And it's like, well, doesn't every house have electricity? It's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm using an electrical light bulb right now and I'm going to have an electrified, I'm going to have an electrified uh, media experience. It's like, why are you talking about the need for electricity? Like everything has electricity. What are you talking about? So it, like it's 2020. So this idea about it being online is so ridiculous. It's actually weird if it wasn't online. It would be weird if it didn't involve some sort of online element. Um, so people are, people are, people have evolved to the point of thinking that online doesn't mean anything anymore anyway, because, you know, if I'm in the back of an Uber, I know, you know, the, the, you've got to rack your memory as to what that's like, but if I was in the back of an Uber and I'm looking at my emails and I'm answering my emails on my phone, am I online or am I offline? Because I ordered the Uber using an app, which is online. I'm now sitting in the back of a car, which is offline. I'm checking my emails, which is online. But does any of it feel like I'm online or offline? Ridiculous. So it's just a hybrid reality, right? And I, th I think most businesses who are going to survive this are going to emerge with a lot of what they're doing delivered online and and you know, sorry, delivered in whatever in the new in the so new here's, world. Here's what I'd like. Here's what I'd like you to re re replace it with. Replace it with the word real time or convenient or um, on demand or um anything that represents for the customer additional convenience so mm. rather than talking about online you want to talk about we we do this in real time we do this on demand um you know we've got a we've got a program that is designed to help you as and when you need it in real time whenever whenever you need it 24 7 um 24 7 365 delivered to you anytime you want um because this is the other thing. Disney Plus, I've just subscribed to Disney Plus for my kids. It doesn't feel like it's online. It feels like it's on demand. It feels like it's in real time. So for the, you want to always language things in, as the benefit to the customer. Yeah. And that language is so important, right? Especially when you're trying to make yourself look a little bit different to what to everyone else out there right now who are all doing the same sort of thing. Yeah. 
yeah, online program, everyone's saying, oh, I've got an online program. It's like immediately that sounds cheap. Mm, yeah, you, you, need, you need to find a way to separate yourselves. Um, totally with you there. So, so okay. So, how how do you um, how do you create that tension? How do you how do you start mapping out this tension from the very very beginning when you're looking at your business? So, step one is to create a limited capacity that delivers a truly remarkable result, something that is a remarkable transformation. Um, so, for example, you do um, you do martial arts and you do anti-bullying let's talk about that as an example so a truly remarkable result in an anti-bullying program would be that a child who was being bullied and felt crushed suddenly reframed the experience used it as um as a tool to become confident outspoken and actually more popular and as a result of being bullied and teased suddenly they're becoming more confident more popular and they've turned the whole thing around. That would be a remarkable result. Like that's, that is every parent's dream. And if you think about it, yes, part of it is to watch some videos online. Part of it is to fill in some online scorecards, but part of it could be a live session. Part of it could be um, talking to the principal. Part of it could be, um, you know, having, you know, there's all sorts of things that could be included in creating that result. And when you truly think about not how do I deliver some courses, but how do I get the amazing, remarkable result, then there's a limitation on capacity. There is almost always a limitation on capacity around that. Um, so if you start with a remarkable result and reverse engineer from there and actually build what is my true capacity for delivering that remarkable result, let's say you then realize, wait a second, I can only do this for 60 families per year. That's it. Like I can, or 60 families per quarter or 60 families per month, whatever the number is. But you realize actually to do this properly, to do it really well, there's a limitation to how many people I can truly work with in order to deliver a great experience. And as soon as you then um, do that, and also if you can kind of figure out what is the experience, so what is that remarkable transformation? I think most parents would say for a thousand pounds, I would absolutely pay to go from a crushed, bullied teenager to that happy kid that I knew six months ago who bounced in the house full of life and full of joy to to be able to transition from this dark and you know you know depressed kid that I've got at the dinner table tonight to the kid who's bouncing around like they were six months ago I would pay a thousand pounds to get that to get that kid back um and then you say okay can we deliver the remarkable result for the thousand pounds and can we like package that up and really do it well if the answer is yes now you've got capacity so then the next trick is how do you oversubscribe capacity? So if, if let's say the number was 60 per month, well, in order to hold the price point, you actually need more than 60 to want it. So you've basically got to have 70, 80, 90, or 100 people who say, I want one of those 60 spots. I don't mm. want to wait till next month. Now, as soon as you get to the point where you've got a capacity to take on 60 and you've got 100 people who want, who have pre-registered, who've said, yep, take my money, um, and you say, I'm really sorry, 40 of you have to miss out. I'm, I, you can come next, you can come on next month, but this month I can take on 60, that's it. Next month you'll be the first in line. That is what creates demand and supply tension and holds the price steady. Um, yeah, so, so you have I mean, to go through a process of oversubscribing capacity. This this is this is kind of what you what you refer to as the delight capacity, right? And and I'm, I remember I remember kind of implementing this into my, my business in the UK about three years ago. Uh, 
prior prior to doing this, we were we were sort of letting people come and go into the clubs as much as they wanted. You know, you could you could phone us up and you could rock up that day, right? Yeah. And then this all changed. There was only <laughs> there were only four times during the year you could join us after a thirty minute interview. Um, and you know, instead of having thirty children in the class, we went down to about um, sixteen children, seventeen children in the UK. Um, then when we launched in Dubai, we did we we started this off with you know just thirteen kids allowed in the class, and um, you know again similar sort of thing, interviewing people um, to let them in, and and you know it was we were turning people away, and actually people were getting quite frustrated. What you know why why are you, why are you turning me away? You know, and it, it was it was a case of we would have to do an assessment first. Um, but ultimately, by doing that assessment first, we were making sure they were the right people for it. And part of that um, assessment criteria was how much of an impact can we make on their life? Because ultimately, yeah. if, we're, if we're looking at this as a candidate for our clubs, who's going to go off and, and essentially speak to other people about the impact we've made, we want to maximize that, right? That's a great, that's a great way to look at it, where you're only taking on students based on their ability to get a radical transformation. So you're sitting there saying, we, we're not just doing martial arts, we're doing character development. Um, so we need to actually do character development. So we're looking for the right people to bring on to the class. Now, parents, as soon as they hear that this is something really special and that there's a criteria, then they're like, okay, well, how do I how do I apply and how do I meet the criteria? Some won't, by the way. Some will sit there and go, look, honestly, I'm not going to jump through your hoops. I just want my kids to do some martial arts training once a week. Like, that's it. Like, no big deal. Take take 30 pounds and do one session a week and, like, that's it. Um, you know, so some parents, they're not looking for that, and that's totally fine. Like, you know, some people have a Toyota and some people have a – Rolls Royce. So, mm. you know, there are different there are different people out there. So the the key is that uh, you do want to have a situation where you go, yep, we're creating remarkable um, capacity, and that capacity is the capacity to delight or create a really great transformation. Um, and then the trick is to oversubscribe that capacity, and this is the tricky part. You need to get a significant more num a higher number of people who signal interest. <clears throat> versus the capacity you have. So once you know the number, let's just for round numbers call it 100. You actually have to do this process of marketing for signals, not sales. Marketing for signals, not sales means that you're not asking people to buy anything. You're asking them to signal their intention or signal their interest in the capacity uh, versus buying. So you say we've got 13 people. We're, we're going to launch a, a school in Dubai. Uh, we can take on 13 students per quarter. Um, so there'll be 13 and then there'll be 26 and then, you know, at the end of the year we'll have about 52 um, and there's a reason for that. And basically if you want to come in next quarter, you've got to be one of 13. Would you be interested in that? Please fill in an application, uh, a, a pre-application signal. So by marketing for signals versus sales, what you end up doing is, is start this process of having people who have signaled their interest that they want the capacity. Now what happens is that, once you hit a certain point, it starts getting ridiculous that demand and supply tension begins to build. So, for example, if you have this 13 units of capacity for your classes and 130 people have filled in the application, as soon as you re-signal that back to market and say, look, unfortunately, um, I, I don't mean to be a pain in the bum, I don't mean to be difficult, we have 13 spots available, we have 130 people who have filled in the form, um, if it's not right for you, that's totally fine. I'm looking to bring down that list anyway. And suddenly people become ferocious about wanting to work with you. Um, yeah, completely. Just, just to kind of add an experience of mine, 
on, on this at this stage of the over, oversubscribed system. Um, you know, we we after I kind of went through this process in the UK, we only ever launched clubs using this system. So we would only ever launch a club if we had three times or four times as many people interested as we could take on. Um, I think our most successful um, launch was in January. Um, we we launched, you know, four it was four clubs um, back to back on a Saturday. Uh, we had the capacity for about fifty people max, uh, and we had two hundred people sign up. Um, and what was quite funny is throughout Christmas, you know, we had 150 who wanted the spots, but we kept on advertising. We just yep. kept on advertising because we wanted to reach, you know, four times of our, of our capacity. And it's funny, I bet you actually had some parents annoyed at you, angry at you. Why can't we join? Yeah. Um, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? We had a lot of people saying, look, can I just pay for six months or a year up front? And we're like, no, we want to meet you and get to know you and we want to assess your child and, and, and also assess your readiness for the program. Um, and, you know, to make it fair, we only allow payments on, on the first day. And so, you know, the first day everyone paid for all the slots. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. That is more buyers than sellers, right? Going back to my original point with my stock market trading guy, that is what happens when there's more buyers than sellers. You have mm. a what's you have in the stock market you have what's called a supported price you actually have a you have what's called support for the price uh, yeah. and that support is basically what holds prices up the opposite of that is trying to sell stuff i've got courses i've got courses will you take my courses um i've got two for one today four for one today uh, buy one get 10 free like it's just this kind of like sell 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 and what you're actually doing is forcing the price. You don't know you're doing it, but what you're actually doing is force the price down, force it up. You're mm. actually finding a rock bottom for your price. Um, yeah. And it's, it's the wrong way to go. I mean, you know, looking at this, I think by doing that, it makes the whole experience very stressful of running a business. Um, but it also means you take on people you may not have taken on before, I think. When I, when I, I look at some of the clients who, who, we, who we, we may have taken on in the past and we did things the old way, pre-oversubscribe way and you know it was clients that you know we we you know they were they weren't the the perfect client for us or we weren't the perfect solution for them and as soon as we made you know we made this change it was it was far more enjoyable working with people because we were kind of it was almost like a hand-picking selection right right yeah um here's a question for you now that you know the oversubscribe method and you've applied it what percentage of businesses do you look out and see that you think you like when you look around now and kind of you know kind of it's like having a set of goggles on where you see the world yeah. differently um when you're looking around now how many what percentage of businesses do you think are getting this wrong it's it's super high 80 90 percent yeah like I'm, and if you even take a look at your competitors like what percentage of your competitors are getting this wrong well, the, I think a lot of our competitors, they have the approach of build it and they will come. So they'll set something up and then they'll expect people to come. We, we have the complete opposite approach, right? So we, we get people to come and then we build it. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's get a different. Get oversubscribed and then we build it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I think Which, you by know. The way, like what Ferrari would do. Ferrari, they sell 750 cars and then go and build 750 cars or a top property developer has a little tiny plastic model um, with pretty lights on it and some brochures. They sell a building, and then once they've sold the building, they build the building. Um, yeah. So, you know, you'd never, ever see a property developer build a building on the hope they could sell it or Ferrari build cars on the hope they could sell the cars. They they absolutely make sure they are oversubscribed at the right price before they, you know, build a single thing. Yeah. 
but uh, it's it's one of those things i look around i see like 80 90 percent of businesses just completely doing the opposite of what works not just the wrong thing like 180 degrees the opposite of what what would work yeah especially now right when when people are thinking they're in this pressure environment and they need to generate revenue and oh. and you know it's it's they're in that stress environment so they make bad decisions yeah i also see if people are lowering their prices um, I, I did a matrix that showed our clients what the impact is of lowering your prices. And if you essentially get a, uh, a, a drop in the market and a drop in the price, you end mm. up almost getting 50% hit on revenue. If you, wow. if you get the drop in the market, but you don't lower the price, you, you almost need the, the market to completely drop away. Yeah. Before, before you hit the same sort of problem. So one of the first things I see people do when there's a recession or a shock, they lower their prices. So they go, oh, you know, we were 300 pounds. Well, now we're 210. Yeah. It's like now you've got less people buying and you've got less prices. You are you are going to be absolutely smacked. Yeah, totally. I, don't, I remember I remember one of the live videos you did on the oversubscribe group. So, by the way, guys, if you if you want to check that out, go on to um, Facebook and search for oversubscribed. Is it called oversubscribed? Yeah, oversubscribe, reset, and reinvent is the so kind of on this group. Dan does a lot of um, lives, and they're super valuable. And um, one of the lives, um, Dan, you spoke about how you shouldn't, you know, when you're in this situation, this crisis or recession, you shouldn't try and appeal to everyone or try and appeal to more people. One of the things you should do is zone in on your true fans, right? Those, those like key, key clients. Yeah. Yeah. So if you imagine the typical marketplace of a hundred people, let's say it represents a hundred people and under normal circumstances, when the market, when the economy shifts, you might have 50% of people interested in buying from you and 50% of people not interested in buying from you. And then when something like a big shock happens in the, like a coronavirus or a stock market shock or a recession, what you'll have is you'll actually end up going from 50% interest and 50% not interested. You'll actually go to like 80% not interested. So most people become not interested in buying from you because, you know, they're, they're under shock. But then there's this weird thing that happens that for 20% of people, you suddenly become twice as valuable. Mm. So they're, they're like, for, for example, um, martial arts training, it could be that there's a small number of families that because of the coronavirus, the parents are now both working really intensely and they need something that they can rely upon as a really good weekly anchor for the kids to develop their character. And you were kind of here in terms of the value that you could deliver before, but now you're, you've just gone up in value a lot because of their circumstances have changed. Yeah. Um, for example, I run business accelerators. Uh, there, there have been certain people who have kind of said, like the most common thing we're hearing now over the, over the last, say, two months, people saying to us, oh, I've been following you guys for two or three years. Had I done what you said two years ago, I would be in such a better position today and I wish I had have worked with you two or three years ago, but now my business absolutely needs to do this or else we're not going to survive. Like yeah, right. it would have been a smart thing to do two years ago. It's an essential thing to do uh now and, and uh, i guess that's a mindset shift right because a lot of people i know going going through this difficult difficult time and they're kind of looking at their business oh you know people don't have as much money or they're, they're not in the right place or we'll, ne we'll never get as many customers or whatever it is and they don't have that that kind of mindset shift of well actually maybe i am more valuable now because of a b and c right well they focus on the people who are now not interested 
So they yeah. go, they go, holy crap, you know, we used to appeal to 50% of the market. Now we only appeal to 20% of the market. Um, and they're focused on the 30% who moved away, as opposed to realizing that the 20% who are still interested are not mildly interested. They're massively interested. They're really yeah. focused. So it's that mindset of, my, I'm going to shrink my capacity down. I'm going to be a more high-value solution to the right people, and we're going to start with people who really, really want to work with us now and and build a truly outstanding capacity for those people. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. Um, so, okay, so we've, so we've gone through the like capacity. We've talked about... Um, the importance of of you know the getting that ratio right so we can we can oversubscribe the uh, the number we've got. What's the next step here? So one of the key principles in the book is called um, uh, first make your market, then make your sales. So part of it is getting people to signal interest versus to buy anything. So marketing for signals, not sales. The other part of it is warming people up. Um, so warming people up means that you need to become special in the eyes of others. You need to become uh, not just a supplier, but the supplier. And there's actually a lot of research as to how human beings bond or fall in love or um, build uh, strong connections with um, with people and with brands. And there's there's three pieces of research that I draw from. And one says that it's actually a seven, there's a seven hour significant number around seven hours one says 11 interactions and one says four locations and like for example the four location one was a little was a little study where they got people who didn't know each other strangers and they had a control group who had to spend uh, an hour together sitting opposite each other talking and finding out about each other and they just sat in chairs opposite each other and then they got another group who they spent 15 minutes in one location 15 minutes in a second location 15 minutes in a third location and then 15 minutes in a fourth location. And what they found is that people who had spent time in four locations together were way more bonded and and um, like laughing and joking and had a lot more rapport and also knew a lot more about each other than the people who had stayed in one location. So that's like four locations. And then, and like how that translates is that if someone follows you on Twitter and that's the only place they follow you, that's a one-dimensional little kind of relationship. But if that person follows you on Twitter and watches your YouTube videos and is a friend on Facebook and reads your book, it's like that person really loves you. Like they're, they're, they're like going along with all the stuff that you're doing. So yeah. four locations. Uh, 11 interactions is that they, uh, go that was Google's research, Zero Moments of Truth, where they essentially looked at people who made a significant purchase. They went through their, their history of their browsing history and found that the once you make that significant purchase, we can actually track back and find 11 significant interactions with that brand on average before you buy. So if you're going to go and buy Apple headphones, let's say, um, there's a good chance you've had 11 strong significant interactions with this brand before you go off and buy the buy the product. So they've you know 11 interactions, and then the seven hour rule was um, from from acquaintance to friend or from stranger to acquaintance basically it was that once you had clocked up seven hours with some someone something magically shifts in the brain where the brain thinks of you as as a different person so right up until seven hours i think oh yeah seb bates he's this kind of person who's a client right he's, a, he's in a group of people he's a client i recognize his face i remember his name a little bit and then at about the seven hour mark it's like 
oh, that's Seb. He's a friend. He's he's a he's more than just a client. He's someone I know. I kind of recognize him uh, well. And now, what's funny is this can be a one-sided thing. It can be a totally one-sided relationship. So, for example, if you sat in an audience and you spent seven hours watching a presenter who's giving you an amazing talk for seven hours, but they're just looking at a big sea of people, you look at the presenter and think of them as this amazing person that you know really well. They think of you as just someone they've never met, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so interesting, this. I, I, I love this because it's it's so true. The um, Especially the, the locations thing, right? I mean, the, the, the idea there is, you know, Yes, you can have four, lo four locations, but you can actually do that within a video, right? So a lot of what we do and a lot of what I do is video content. Um, and if you've got a, a typical talking point of three minutes long and you've managed to put in stock content of you where you, you maybe been talking on stage or you're out, you're out and about and you've got that content in on the video, you're in four places. Oh, and so yeah. even on, even, you can even use that methodology of you know, four locations within that and it works, it works really, really well. That does work. Uh, when someone t when someone takes you on a journey in a three or four minute video, it feels like uh, much more significant than um, than than just in one location. You're you're 100 right. So what we do in the book is we talk about the idea of Seven Eleven fouring people. I sound, I know that sounds kind of sounds a little bit naughty to, to go and Seven Eleven for your market, um, but but essentially what you want to do is clock up time interactions and touch points with a large number of people. Think about this on a grand scale. Um, in 2016, uh, Gene Wildman, uh, sorry, like well, Gene Wild, uh, Muhammad Ali, Prince, all these amazing famous people, David Bowie, they all passed away. People were devastated, they were so upset. It's because they'd been 7-Eleven forward by that person. Mm -hmm. If you felt sad about David Bowie, You'd probably listen to a lot of David Bowie music. You'd read articles in uh, magazines about him. You might have seen an interview on TV. So you're, you've been 7-Eleven forward by David Bowie. Then he dies and you feel very sad about it. And it's like, oh, God, you know, that's that's heartbreaking. So he, so, he hasn't spent time with you, but you've been spending time with him. Yeah, so he, he's not sad when you when something happens to you, you right? So um, so the, the issue is that the brain doesn't understand the difference between digital or real interactions. So let's say you record, let's imagine just for argument's sake, you record a seven hour video and a thousand people watch it, right? So you give a talk for seven hours and a thousand people actually watch it. It's cost you seven hours of content creation time, but it's actually been watched by 7,000 hours worth of people. So one one seven-hour cost to you has now been amplified to a thousand people who feel that they've received seven hours. Each person feels like they've massively gotten so much value that now they feel, whoa, I really would love to work with this person. This is a phenomenal, you know, I really know them, like them, trust them, etc. So this is the power of digital content. When you create digital content, you are clocking up time and people and interactions and all this sort of stuff with people um, and you're literally getting on people's radar in a really meaningful way. It costs you the time to do it once, but um, very rapidly it multiplies out across hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. So you end up 7-Eleven in the marketplace. And, um, you know, this is the magic of the times that we're in because it's, it's, it's only because of digital that the average everyday person can even begin to do this at scale. 
And there's, I mean, from your perspective, what, what sort of media has worked best for you? At the moment, Facebook groups with live chats is really powerful because um, mm. Facebook algorithms are dr driving that. Facebook, a year ago, Mark Zuckerberg said that he wanted people in groups and he wanted people watching lives. And that was a huge part of the Facebook experience. He said that all the algorithms are now going to be based around getting people to engage in groups. Um, Here we are. <laughs> Yep. Um, so live broadcast into groups is, is really powerful and also written because it's also written as well. If you do written posts, that that's mm. a different form, but it actually really connects with people. So if you're going to leverage Facebook, leveraging groups is a is a very, very powerful thing. Same thing of uplo uploading native video into um, LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn's our algorithms at the moment. If you've got 5,000 connections on LinkedIn, it won't just amplify a native video to your 5,000 contacts. If people are liking it and sharing it and talking about it, it'll actually amplify it to about three times as many people. So I've mm. seen plenty of people with 5,000 friends end up on 15 to 20,000 views. Uh, in an extreme example, I saw one guy upload uh, a video. Uh, it was about why he sold his uh, why he sold his brand new Jaguar, and um, uh, he'd bought, he'd achieved a goal, he'd achieved a vision. He always wanted to have a Jag. Um, he bought it and then he realized that his family and his, his his most loved ones couldn't fit in it, that essentially it was a selfish thing that that wasn't right for his family. And he decided that why have I got this all my money, all this money tied up in this thing? And then he went and bought a big family car. So the emphasis was back on making sure the family could all, all be in the vehicle. Um, and he did this nice video about it. It went out to 1.2 million people, lots of people commenting and sharing and all this sort of stuff. But I think he only had 4,000 LinkedIn connections and it ended up being seen by over a million people. So, when you crunch the numbers on that, when you crunch the numbers, it's a five minute video, but it's actually gone to five million minutes of view time. Mm. Um, that's extraordinary leverage. I know you do a similar thing with, with your books as well. Well, a book to write a book and to throw it at everyone I could, I could see. <laughs> <laughs> Go to weddings, throw it at people. Yeah, we've been them at dogs in parks, tied <laughs> the with them. Got me in so much trouble. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but when people read a book, that typically they'll spend four or five hours reading that book. They'll also hunt down the author on YouTube and all that sort of stuff. So suddenly, and people years, years later after reading a book, they still trigger memories of that author. It's like, oh, I read that book. Yeah. Uh, and it's, 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 the great thing about a book is, you know, if you're so often you you'll take a book on holiday when you're in a visionary mindset and then you'll sit down and just spend the whole day with that person reading their book, right? Yeah. Um, I, I realized that I read Sapiens years ago. Like it was actually years ago that I read Sapiens and it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Because I still think of myself as knowing that guy. Yeah, right. And, and the podcast, a similar sort of thing, right? Because podcasts, you're not going to watch a video while you're in the gym or while you're driving, but you are, you, you know, it's, it's an amazing tool for, you know, for, for audio all the time while, while you're passively doing something else. It's almost like someone's next to you talking to you while you're getting to know them, right? Yeah, podcasts <laughs> are great. And once again, let's say only 100 people listen to a podcast. Like let's say you're not Joe Rogan um, and, uh, and you've got only 100 people listening to a podcast. Well, it's taken you one hour to record it and it's 100 hours of people, you know, absorbing it. It's ultimate leverage. It's amazing leverage. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so a quick look through because I've, I've been ignoring the questions a little bit just so we could um, get a bunch up. 
so let's have a quick look through here. Amplifying content is so important, definitely. Wow, never looked at it like that. Seven hours equals 7,000 hours, definitely. Good question, Craig. Let's look for Craig's question. Um, so me and my partner are going to be launching a subscription box service soon. Is it worth putting the website live before we have the product sorted then? Oh, 100%. Like, uh, like Craig, 100%. What you want is you want people pre-registering for the box. Um, and the cool thing about that business is all you need to do is grab a box and a bunch of products and stick it in a box so you've got some photos of what it looks like and just mm -hmm. have people you know, use Photoshop and change the labels and change the design and the colors and all that sort of stuff, you know, and have, you know, little asterisks, you know, illustration purposes only or something like that. Um, or even get a designer to design up a cartoon version of what the box might look like. Start promoting it. The, the, the heartbreaking thing that I see is people all the time, like let's say here's what, here's what someone like Craig could do that would be heartbreaking. You could spend three months figuring out box suppliers, uh, shipping companies, um, you know, different products. You could do testing to see if the products are any good. You could do all sorts of stuff. You could map out six months worth of boxes that go, you know, what's going to be in all of them. And you spend three, four, five months and maybe 30 or 40 grand when, you're, when, you've, when it's all in and you've spent all this money setting it all up. And then you discover, you go to market and no one gives a shit. No one cares. No one's interested. You know, here you are, you've poured your heart and soul into this and it's like it's only £39 a month. You know, it's so much value for £39 and everyone's like, eh, I don't want to spend £39 a month. And it's like, but it's £150 worth of value for £39. It's like, yeah, you know what, I don't care. I just don't care. I don't know why. I don't know why I don't care. Um, <laughs> you're, build, you're trying to build the perfect thing and guess that people will like it. But but I, th I think, you know, you know the, the, just pre-subscribing, getting people to pre-subscribe, right? When you're, when you're first... When you're first creating something, the first thing you want to do is get feedback that it's actually going to work. And one of the easiest ways to do that, the cheapest way to do that is to create a lead page and get people to pre-subscribe. Get people to pre-subscribe and then send them an email and say, we've got room in the box for one more thing. What would you love that one thing to be? Right? <laughs> and then you're asking the market, like, what? <laughs> If thirty if thirty percent of people want that thing, then just just add that thing. That yeah, exactly. Um, or we're or we're we're not quite sure. These are the things that we're putting in the in the box. One thing won't fit. What should we get rid of? Uh, what do we remove from this the box in order to make room? Um, what what's the one? What's the least valuable thing on the box, and why? Uh, yeah. You know, you start asking them this stuff, and suddenly you've now fine tuning your offer. And people are going, they're giving you the feedback. They're feeling a sense of buy-in and involvement um, and, uh, and away you go. But mm. uh, most people won't do this. They become so obsessed with putting something together because it's so much fun creating this, you know, fantasy that I'm going to have this thousand people spending 39 pounds a month or whatever. Mm. And, and then just, you know, they're not doing the thing that's most important, which is getting people to pre-subscribe. Totally. I, I see so many people in that kind of fantasy mindset, right? And Yeah, poor Craig. Poor Craig's Craig. never gonna go into the live now. He's like, God, oh, they picked on me for like twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I ever ask a damn question again. Thanks, guys. Um, let's have a look. We've got another question here. Uh from from my brother, Stanbar. You you uh you met Patrick once, actually, uh Patrick Daniel. Thanks. 
he, you met him in Birmingham, I think, and he, he asked you for your pitch and you gave him your social pitch. I do. I remember. Yeah, exactly. I do remember Patrick. What is he, what is he saying now? So Patrick's gone and started his own business now in Copenhagen. So he's, um, he's, uh, making, um, he's doing basically content videos for, for companies in Copenhagen. Uh, he says here, what would your, what would be your first step in becoming oversubscribed as a startup with little to no revenue? Um, my first step would be to get shitloads of revenue. Um, <laughs> sorry, Patrick, but it was an sorry, obvious sorry, one. The, question, <laughs> the answer's in the question with that one, mate. Um, <laughs> uh, what would I, what would I be doing? Okay. Uh, well, for starters, outlining capacity, uh, getting people to signal interest, not, um, you know, signal interest, getting, getting yourself oversubscribed. Uh, literally get with that sort of business, literally going out and talking to people um, and and actually uh, having conversations with them and then just simply say we launch, you know, we're launching in three months. Would you be interested in being a client? There's no, there's no pressure. But the superpower is when you can go back to people at the end of three months and say, as I mentioned to you earlier, we've got room to take on 12 clients, but we do actually currently have 48 people who have said they want to work with us. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's where we, where we need to be. Um, the other thing you could be doing is 7-Eleven Fouring. So you could be running a, uh, a series of workshops on Zoom, telling people about the value of content and getting people to really buy into your methodology uh, as much as possible. And that, um, that would allow you to have a, a ready-made marketplace as well. So that would be a, a good one. Okay, cool. So if you've got any questions, put them through and now I can... Uh, uh now i can just keep going through these until seb gets back um all right so let me have a look here what questions are here how old of an entity entity do you need to be in order to start being oversubscribed so that's a good one about what age of of business should you be before getting oversubscribed um i've always done it from the start so when i launched a business in the uk hey welcome back seb welcome to the show <laughs> Streamers um, seems to do this now and again. Sorry, guys. We're answering the question: How old does the business need to be before you can be oversubscribed? And I was saying that I've always done this from the beginning. So when I launched a business in the UK, uh, we actually got 800 people to come to our pre-launch events, and um, and we had capacity, to, I think, to take on 120 clients. And basically, uh, we had 800 people, 120 spots available. And we we did huge amounts of revenue very very rapidly. Um, I think we did a million pounds in the first three months. So it was uh, it was just basically getting oversubscribed from the very very start using big launch events. Um, I once had a, a an idea to start a latex mattress company, and um, I put in a pre I put in an order for thirty latex mattresses from Thailand, and then I ran a series of dinner parties. Uh, I think we had four dinner parties, seventy people per dinner party. So we had 280 people come through. Yeah, 280 people come through. And we told people we've got 30 of these latex mattresses coming from Thailand. Um, so if you want to have them, you know, we did this whole dinner party around the best night's sleep of your night life and what would it involve and all this. And we we sold we sold 30 latex mattresses at above, like well above the price of normal traditional brands that have been around for 20 years. And um wow. You know, we were, we were more more highly priced. We were at a higher price, you know, a completely unknown brand. But it, the, the rules of being oversubscribed are the rules. Those are the rules. It doesn't Nothing else really matters. If you're oversubscribed, you're oversubscribed. 
Um, yeah, totally. Really, really interesting. Um, so, so that was obviously a question about if you if you were kind of low revenue or startup. Is that the case? It was how old does your organization have to be um, uh, before uh, before you can get yourself oversubscribed? And perfect. The the best case scenario is um, is is the uh, do it from day one. Do that's, it from day one. That's the best scenario because that's where your lowest over. That's the point where you've got the lowest overheads. You've got no baggage. Uh, if you can become oversubscribed from day one, that's the that's the powerful thing. I mean, Jason Greystone's on the call. Jason launched a new thing called Tears of Freedom, which is a financial literacy program or financial management program uh, for people who want to kind of take their finances into their own hands and manage it at a really high advanced level. And he he did uh, he did it from day one. So as soon as he launched, he had I, whatever it was, two hundred spots available. He got four, six, seven, eight hundred people signaling interest, and then he filled the group on on minute one. So if you can do it from launch, it's the it's the most powerful way to do it because otherwise you've got to essentially turn the turn the ship around because um, there's a default yeah. position that you'll basically be headed in the wrong direction. And I think the difficult thing about that is the perception of value for your current members of you, right? During that whole phase of you growing. It's, it's, you know, whereas if you just start from the, from the get go with a, with a huge following, it looks so much better. Well, do you know, this is also one of the big issues with people dropping their prices right now, because if you drop your prices, um, in the current market, it's very hard to put them back. So as soon as, as soon as you say, okay, we're, we're not 1500 pounds anymore, we're 800 pounds, you know, you've really got to battle your way to then go, because now People know that you used to charge eight hundred pounds, so now they're like, "Oh, why are you a thousand pounds?" It's like, "Oh, well, we were fifteen hundred. We dropped down to eight hundred, and it's yeah. like, well, well, why can't I just pay the eight hundred rate? Because I saw last month you're paying, it, you know." So it's very, very yeah. difficult to get the prices back up once once you've dropped them. It's dangerous territory, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, mathematically doesn't work. It's um, I'll tell you where I got this idea from. By the way, I once was doing um. A series of workshops and events with uh, John D. Martini, and um, the, it was the, the global financial crisis, and the marketplace just tanked, and there was a huge like it was all over the news. There's recession, depression, all that sort of stuff. It's going to be terrible. And I said to John D. Martini, "Hey, because there's a recession, um, can we pay you in pounds, not U.S. dollars, and can we have a discount on the price overall? Um, so basically, a double discount." And he said, "Look." Um, I'm really glad you wanted to talk to me about price because I wanted to talk to you about price as well. Because there's a recession, I'm putting my prices up by 5%. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? <laughs> and he said, there's going to be, le he actually said, there's going to be less people buying. So because there's less people buying, I want to make sure that I um, make up the revenue by putting my prices up by 5%. That's confidence, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was crazy is that I said to him, well, I can't promote you at that rate, so goodbye. Um, really? You, end, you ended it then? I ended it because I couldn't mm. I couldn't make it work at that price. Um, but mind Did you, you do it anyway? Well, here's the crazy thing. Mind you, I was trying to lock in effectively half price with him because really? the, we were paying him in we were paying him roughly speaking for a particular event series, we were paying him twenty thousand US dollars plus costs. Mm. And that at the time was about ten and a half thousand pounds, and then the pound collapsed against the dollar. I wanted to lock in a flat ten thousand pounds per 
for that event series, which would have kind of brought him in at around 13, 14,000 US dollars. So from 20,000 US dollars plus cost down to 14,000 plus cost. Now I was trying to lock that in for a year or two years, um, you know, to, to kind of keep promoting. What's really fascinating is that I thought he was absolutely bonkers. I thought you are, you know, you, you've been smoking some of the good stuff, my friend, um, because because why on earth would you put your prices up in a recession? So here's what actually happened. What actually happened is he found other promoters who wanted to pay him the, the amount. Um, they're people who had seen that I'd been promoting and we'd done really well. And they said, oh, well, if Daniel's not promoting anymore, uh, can we take it over? And they they actually did and they paid the higher rate and you know um they they probably didn't make it work they probably weren't as profitable as we were but for whatever reason they chose to cho chose to work with him and they paid the higher rate and from his perspective he sold it on at the higher rate um yeah. the other when, thing when you, when you look back at that when you sorry when you look back at that um in hindsight um from a business move you know obviously that was the last recession people are now making those sort of decisions now was that a good move to, to up it by 5% or to up rates during the recession when everyone's very price sensitive? Um, well, here's, here's what happened to him. What happened is that he ended up kind of going around the promoters anyway, because in the book 24 assets, I talk about the difference between being a broker versus having an asset. And essentially during these particular times, the brokers get screwed and the asset tends to maintain its value or, or as close to value as possible. So I, as the broker, I was essentially, my old business, Triumphant Events, was essentially a brokerage model business. We just brokered other cool people and made made them available in London. So it's kind of, we were no real, realistically, we were no different to a real estate agent who was saying, hey, check out this amazing property. People wanted the property, not the agent. Um, and we had a cool brand, like Foxton's has a brand, but ultimately most of the value was about what they were getting from the speaker. So John had the asset. He had this program called the Breakthrough Experience. That's mm. what people wanted to do. They'd read the book. They'd seen him in The Secret, and they wanted to work with him. And we were his agent. We were his broker in London. So we we did the world's biggest um, Breakthrough Experience uh, programs. We had 300 people times a grand a head. So we had £300,000 for a weekend uh, workshops that we were running with him. And he was only getting... The equivalent of about forty thousand US for that. Um, so, um, so we oh. were making we were making great money when the market was high, and we we yeah. were the ones taking all the risk and doing all the costs. He would fly in, fly out, yeah. and and we were doing really well. Now, when he put his prices up, I I also just did not like the fact he was putting his prices up. So I just said, look, you know, if you're putting prices up, not down, then I can't make it work. So I'm not going to make it work. But what's what's interesting is that he ended up going around us anyway. So we'd built his brand in this marketplace. We'd done our job of actually building him a core group of fans. Um, and just through word of mouth, he, he turned up. And I'm sitting there going, oh, well, you used to have 300 people at, at the Breakthrough Experience. Now you've got 65 people at the Breakthrough Experience. But when I crunched the numbers, it's like he was still actually making more than the, more, more than the same money anyway. He was, yeah. he was actually, from a business perspective, he was soldiering on pretty much unchanged. Yeah, right. Um, he was dealing with less clients but earning the exact same money. Which is probably um, a good thing really, isn't it? I mean, yeah, and, unless you're trying to impact as many as possible. Yeah, and, you know, there are other ways to impact as many as possible. Mm. But but the point was is that he didn't end up locking himself into a deal at half the rate or three quarters of the rate. He ended up yeah. soldiering on and making money. 
Um, and it was a valuable lesson. He, you know, he 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 knew his value. He stuck to his value, and he basically said, "I'll find someone who sees my value." Um, yeah. And wow. and I'm just I'm just going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole the whole market had changed. Like that was a radical, yeah. a radical shift from, from lots of angles, right? Yeah. But, now, uh, I will say this: there comes a point every now and then you meet a Daniel Priestley. And if you've met a Daniel Priestley, you should know that you've met a Daniel Priestley and you should stick with it because in fairness, <laughs> I also do, I have also seen the other side of things. The negative to, to John is he's never found a promoter like me ever since. No one has ever since, to my knowledge, no one has gotten close to the levels that, that we were doing. So he's, mm. so in 2009, we were doing, or, or 2008, we were doing, 300 people per breakthrough experience. It was the biggest he's ever got. I don't think they do 300 person breakthrough experiences or even close to this day. I'm sure he's making great money and I'm sure his prices are going up and all that sort of stuff. Um, however, you know, to a degree, there are certain, there are sometimes you come across a, a high performer and you actually say, you know what, for the good of the long term, I'll. I'll, I'll find a way, whether it be a payment plan or whether it be we'll advance you the money that you need or mm. something. But I do think that there are certain, you know, for me personally, if I were to, if I were to find someone who was doing the types of work that we were doing um, and who had just proven themselves with real-world results that we could blow it out of the water, um, I probably, I feel like he was a bit flippant, that he was like, he was very much like, yeah, take it or leave it. Here's my rate. My rate just went up by five percent, and um, if that's not for you, that's fine. I guess. I guess the difficult, the difficult thing is with such a big shock to the whole structure and you know the recession and everything, you've got to make such big decisions with absolute conviction, right? Yeah, so, you, you, and I bet people are experiencing the same thing now. Like you know, in in a few years or five years, you might you might regret a decision, but ultimately you've you've, you've got to make got a to, Yeah. The worst. The worst. Hesitate. Hesitation. You, that's it. You're done. On on you know? balance. On balance, I think he made the right decision um, that he he preserved his value. He didn't reduce his prices. Um, he mm. with less people at a higher rate, as he said he would. Um, and um, you know, he could have also been bluffing us. He could have actually been quite shocked that we said we weren't going to do it. Um, but on balance, I think he made the right decision. And, and hey, he's done well, and we've done well. So it's yeah. Uh, yeah. it's all it's all good. So just to, just to kind of give, um, obviously we've been talking a lot about oversubscribed and how to become oversubscribed and create a marketplace. Could you could you run us through a, a real life example, maybe with with Dent, um, how you're doing that now? Um, now you guys have transitioned a lot of what you're doing into real time, not online. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, so for example, we've been we've we've really orchestrated, um, and we've not launched this yet, so I won't go into total detail. But we've really orchestrated um, how we use the technology and the trends of today to get a completely transformational result for our clients. So when we think about using technology, we're not thinking about being more distant from our clients and doing it online. We're thinking about getting our clients right in close and knowing everything about them all the time, you know, and just being able to work with them at a much higher frequency. So, for example, pre-COVID, we would see our clients in a live event once a month. Um, now we're going to be seeing our clients every two weeks, um, plus we're going to have hero sessions, plus we're going to have coaching sessions, um, and pretty much we're going to, you know, like almost double the frequency that we're seeing, connecting, adding value to our clients, um, more than doubling that frequency. 
Um, also, pre-COVID, we would hand out workbook, workbooks to people in a live environment and people would be filling in their workbooks, but we would have no idea what they're writing down and whether they're doing the right thing. Now we've replaced that with Google Sheets and in a live training environment, whether we're running on Zoom, people are filling in their answers and I'm literally watching the the Zoom, uh, the, the Google Sheet fields fill in and I'm seeing people uh, like, and I'm able to see people getting the answers, you know, putting answers up that are great and sharing those, people who have not quite, they've maybe missed the mark and I'm sharing that and explaining why. And the training environment has become so much more engaging. And not only that, in a live environment, if you've got 60 people, you've got some people having a great front row experience and, and some people having three rows back. Uh, you know, the reason I capped our programs at 60 or 70 people is because you actually end up with a back row who feel that they're not getting the same experience as the front row once you go above 60 or 70 people. When you yeah. do it on Zoom, everyone feels they're getting a front row experience. Mm. Um, so so for starters, we started with how do we use technology and trends of today to build a, a much better experience for our clients and get closer to our clients and be delivering more quick transformation for our clients. So we answered that question. And then we said, how many people can we realistically do that for? And the answer is there's three time zones and we can take on 50 people per quarter. So across three time zones, it's um, it's 200 per year. Um, so it's about 600 clients per year globally is what we can now take on as our capacity. Um, so there, there's the capacity answer, 600. Um, and then how do we get that oversubscribed? Well, actually, in order to have 600, we need to engage. I like to think about uh, between five and 10. So you need to engage with 3,000 to 6,000 people in order to get your 600 clients. So one of the first things I did is I registered a new group called Oversubscribe, Reset, Reinvent, and we've already got 2,700 people join in the first two months. Mm. Um, and all I'm doing is warming the group up. So I'm doing lots of Facebook Lives and I'm sharing lots of comments and um, I'm putting information into the group. And essentially, yeah, people are people are 7-Eleven-4-ing in, into the group. And part of the strategy is that we get to a point where there's three to 6,000 people in that group. And at the point that we've got three to 6,000, we now then mathematically know that we have demand and supply tension for the 200 uh, per, per time zone that we want. Um, so essentially we're just getting ourselves into that demand and supply tension rebalance or the, the, dis, the, the disproportionate balance that we're looking for. So at the moment we're building demand and supply tension. Um, now, people don't necessarily know it in those terms, but they can see the group is growing um, uh, and they can also um, see that there's capacity issues that we can only take on so many people. Do you have a, um, a kind of filtering system in your, in, your, in your group or do you just let anyone join at all? Uh, you have to answer a few questions um, to, to join. Um, and then immediately, as soon as someone starts posting nonsense and, and spam and, uh, you know, bang, they're out. Um, so I'm mm. filtering people out that way. Um, the best filtering mechanism that we do have is pre. one of the first things we do before we work with anyone is our scorecard. So one of our first call to action after the book or after the, the group, any of that information is scorecard. Um, scorecard allows us to quantify specifically where people's starting point is at and whether we can create a great transformation. So realistically, we only take on clients who score between 15 and 50% on the on the scorecard, over 50% and they're already too far along the journey for us to get a remarkable transformation, under 15 yeah. and they're too early in the journey. 
Um, so we have this Goldilocks zone of 15 to 50% that we're looking for as an overall score. And then that's the people that we know we can, they've got enough fundamental strength to get a great transformation, but they've also, they've also not done everything that we would do. Um, so then there's, then there's an interview process after that. I think there's there's an inter- yeah. So with people who score 15 to 50%, um, we essentially book an interview and we have a chat with them and, and away we go. Um, so we use a tool called score app i'm a i'm a shareholder in that um it's a tool that i helped develop and build because it's such a powerful tool and it's exactly the way that i wanted it built based on the oversubscribed principles but essentially it's uh, scoreapp.com is the tool that we use to build those scorecards and then to do the automatic marketing off the back of them but that's one of our first uh key answers that we uh the, the one of the key filters that we use what's the um the scorecard people can use that you've actually created what's the yeah. web scoreapp.com i mean the the key person influence scorecard oh uh key person of influence uh, so scorecard.keypersonofinfluence.com so yeah. if you actually do a search for key person of influence scorecard on google you'll find it um that way you guys would if you're running a business guys and you're watching this well i think everyone who is who is watching this is <laughs> then you'll um you'll be able to kind of benchmark yourself um on you know where you where you where you stand on the five p's yeah. uh, and and you know where you can improve people have got time i would actually go all in with my scorecards do the 24assets.com scorecard and actually see what digital assets you've already got in your business versus which ones you need to develop do the key person of influence scorecard to to find out how you're behaving as a key person of influence and then there's a campaign driven enterprise scorecard um which is about whether you're running effective campaigns and promotions if you start with those three scorecards and you do them all on the same day and print them out and then six months from now, 12 months from now, you test yourself and see whether you've improved. It's actually going to show you how much can be achieved in the six months um, or how how much didn't get achieved in six months. But, uh, hopefully, these are the books. Someone asked um, what order to read the books in. Uh, Jason has yeah, said, Entrepreneur oh. Revolution, KPI, Oversubscribe 24 Assets. That's the best order to read them in. Uh, with the scorecards, they you know they're they're very very useful for that. I, I think over the last three or four years, I've I've done them several times, probably every six to twelve months. Um, and it and it, it really highlights areas you can work on. And you know as you as you really focus on something over the next six months, you look back and you can be quite impressed at uh, what you've done. Um, especially with, I, lo- I love the twenty four assets heat map. Um, yeah. I know I know Tim, Tim's watching this, and Tim absolutely loves it. He's he's massive on assets <laughs> and creating assets. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's dissected that and built as many assets as he possibly could. Um, but it's, it's really, really useful guys. Um, so I definitely recommend, um, doing that. So have a quick look, any more questions here, um, from Sajid, how do you deal with people who don't participate or add value to the group? Um, oh, you may have already covered that. I think you just remove them, don't you? No, 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 no. I remove people who are obnoxious and, and, and detracting value from the group deliberately. Um, or using the group as a as a marketing channel, which they've got no permission to do and no one wants them to do anyway. Um, but there are plenty of people who sit very, very passively on the sidelines observing and they're not going to participate. They're just going to quietly sit there and watch what happens. Um, it's funny, there are, cert- there are certain people, like I'm, I'm a liker. Um, I go through Facebook and I'm like, 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 like. I reckon that I'm probably, probably it's as embarrassing it is to say, I'm probably up to like 500,000 likes. If you went through, if like Facebook, if Facebook uh, tracks how many things I've liked, I've been a member since 2006, 2007. So I must have 
half a million likes maybe you know it's got to be something like that i would i would Good be number. shocked if my wife was over a thousand i would actually be shocked she probably joined at the same time um really. yeah but, but she's not she's watching she's watching the same amount of content but it's just she's not a liker she no. under no circumstances will she signal to facebook that she likes something or not like something if <laughs> if ever you see her like something it's like really wow okay that's commitment that is a big commitment you've just made there you've liked something yeah. like once a month you've you've done your monthly like on facebook right. um, so there are some people who who just um some people are likers and commenters and and uh, participators some people are watchers they love to watch what's going on and they they might be in the group every single day they might be watching everything that you're doing but they're just not going to participate weird mm. thing is is i've also noticed that sometimes there are people who sit and watch you for a while and they watch what you're up to and they absorb the content and then they go this is the person i want to work with and then they're actually dream clients they really do the work they get they get the work done they're great people to work with but they don't do that until they've made the commitment to to work with you but but before they do that they want to check really check you out yeah right and and give them the, give them the opportunity to do that right one of, one of the things that i've found people um really like to engage on with groups and this is actually a really good oversubscribed tool to, to collect signals of interest is polls um I, th I think people are far more likely to click on a poll and give their give their opinion if you're giving them the, cho the you know the choices of opinion than they yeah. are to write their opinion down um you know one of the things that's that's like scorecards work scorecards are effectively 30 or 40 questions that are do you like this not like this yes no you know bang 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 bang, bang and people pick them up everyone sees it so 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 the one of the one of the great things about when you or the or the the, um, the points of oversubscribe is to show people how oversubscribed you are right so yeah. if you're brave enough to put a poll together and say look we've got you know so so for instance when um when we had the lockdown and you know with the warrior academy in dubai um just a little experience we had we we, we were using this system right and we wanted to launch private one-on-one -on -one tuition so first of all we said would you be interested in this we think the price point will be roughly this um, would you be interested? And we had about 100 yeses. Then we said, you know, okay, we've only got 20 people, you know, we've only got 20 spots and the price is going to be this and you have to buy 10 or 20 packages. Are you interested? We had 85 people say yes. And then we sold 20 on one day. And it was, it's just class and we just use polls. And the yeah, great thing about screenshot yeah. poll, email it to 2,000 people in your database showing, showing the interest, right? Yeah, demand and supply tension is what works. Um, the people people say i've heard people say that people buy for emotional reasons i've heard other people say no no people buy for logical reasons and the truth is it's a combination of emotion and logic but actually the reason people buy is because the conditions are right and it's always that the conditions are right so the question is not do people buy with logical or emotional reasons it's because i can tell you i've got products that i'm interested in emotionally like emotionally i like the idea of buying a rolex for my 40th um, but I'm not necessarily like rolling out and j j buying one or talking a Rolex or anything. It's just, it's an idea I had in my head. Oh, maybe I'll buy a Rolex for my 40th as just a nice thing. Right. But there's an emotional, like, oh, emotionally, right. That's an emotional decision. It's certainly not logical. Um, and then there are certain things that I, there, that I want to buy for logical reasons. There's a certain CRM system that I'm thinking about and it's logical to buy it and all of that. And we've kind of done an analysis of all the different tools and features and it's like okay that's a logical purchase so it's logical or emotional the truth is if the conditions were right to buy a rolex i'd buy one today mm. so like for example if they said 
Daniel, there's this particular one that you're interested in. You signaled your interest in it. There's uh, eight of them that have become available across London, and I've got 800 people on the list, but I know it's your 40th birthday coming up. Would you like to actually get it? And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, the conditions have become right, so I will. I'll grab it. Um, so even though the emotion or the logic, emotion or logic can build a decision, but people don't buy until the conditions are right. And the conditions being right normally has something to do with a um, disbalance of demand and supply tension. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is I think most, and the reason only, you know, 90, 90% of people don't do this and 10% do or whatever is because they don't realize how much control they've got of that tension. Yeah. You, you can literally control the tension, but with great power comes great responsibility, guys. Oh, so, can, I tell, can I tell you a, a great power comes great responsibility story to finish on? Let's do it. Let's do it. One of the funnest ways that I ever saw this play out was um, we went to a nightclub with this particular guy uh, on the Gold Coast in Australia. And we went to this big nightclub party and there was like a thousand people in a big main room and all this sort of stuff. And this particular guy, he went into the nightclub with a captain's hat, a sail, like a, a ship captain's hat, you know, the white brim one with the black thing and the gold leaf around here. Yeah, right? yeah. He, he went in and he's wearing this captain's hat. And then he had a pile of 20 sailor hat, uh, 20 sailor hats. And what he did is he got up on the on the podium and started dancing with his captain's hat. And not a particularly good looking guy, but like, you know, just like you and me. Uh, no, <laughs> he wasn't a he wasn't a Seb Bates. He wasn't a Seb Bates or a Daniel Priestley, but he was, you know, he was he was he was he was at least a Jason Greystone. Um, oh. but anyway, <laughs> so anyway, he gets up on this uh, on the podium and he's got this captain's hat and he starts with his he's got his pile of sailor hats. And he starts putting the sailor hats on the girls. And the the girls are wearing the sailor's hats and they're all dancing around. And he's just got his captain's hat. And there's now there's 20 girls with sailor hats. And it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Suddenly there was competitive tension between the girls and they were all interested in who's going to get the captain. And it wow. was just, it was the weirdest thing. And I'm sitting there going, but this guy's not even great looking. He's just a... Like he's just a really regular dude, but here he is. Here uh, he is. He, he first made his market. He created the conditions, and then suddenly he's got all the, these girls like kind of semi fighting over him or fighting for his attention. It was the most mind blowing thing. But it, it's it's kind of oversubscribed principles one hundred and one. Yeah, I love that. What a <laughs> what a great story to end on as well. That just sums it up, doesn't it? Uh, I think Amazon is now going to have a rush on captain's hat and sailor's hats. You're going to see what it's like. Why, why does this product just go through the roof just right now? <laughs> Amazing. Awesome stuff. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on today, mate. What's the, um, the best way for people to, to hear more about oversubscribe? Maybe, maybe the book or. Yeah. So um, do the scorecards would be a great one. Um, also, at the moment, we've got um, we got some old versions of my books, uh, like key person of influence books and all that sort of stuff. And we're clearing out we're clearing out the warehouse because we're we're doing a reprint. We're doing a new print with a different um, uh, table of contents and all that sort of stuff. So I've got like nine hundred books in my storage shed of um, key person of influence and all that. If anyone wants a free book, 
just send us your email address at info at dem- uh, sorry send us your physical mailing address info at dent.global um, and we'll send you out a free book um, wow. so uh, yeah su- su- super easy uh, just email uh, info at dent.global with your name and uh, mailing address we'll we'll just send you out a, um, a free book look at that guys awesome buddy Daniel thank you so much mate really appreciate it we really hope you enjoyed this episode If you want to be the first to get access to our live interviews, then head over to f10x.com to apply to be a part of our online community.